0: And gentlemen, and welcome to the Greatest Game, a limited run podcast series from the video games and culture site OK Beast that explores philosophy, aesthetics, and art theory through video games. I am your host, Chase Williams, and I'm sitting across from Max Kelleher. Max, how you doing tonight? Good. It feels good, man. I'm excited for episode three. Yeah, like a glove. The third and final episode. We gotta so put all up. of we gotta put it all to rest tonight. Let's do it. We got a little loose and wild in the last one I felt, and I enjoyed it. We had to start super boring, as you said. So that all of those seeds could grow into a flowering conversation.
1: Yeah, I felt like episode two is a bit more organic. And I think that the vocabulary established in the first episode helped that out. It's
0: almost like we created a system of constraints that can allow <laughs> some playful discussion. Am I right?
1: That's one of my questions coming up, man. If you want to dive right into that, the idea of like, are we are we playing right now?
0: We're definitely playing right now. Is this play? This is play. Because think about it. We said in the very first uh, episode with Johan his definition that there is a concept of a magic circle that happens with play. And the second that microphones turn on, I think most podcasters who podcast um, will understand this, there's immediately a different feeling. People begin to talk differently. They have different types of conversations. They literally adopt different personalities. And I think that's totally indicative of play. And once the microphones go off, there's usually like even a moment of like compression in the sense that everyone's like, oh, you know, and they kind yeah. of get their breath and then they return to ordinary life, right?
1: So is, is all performance play then? Because I, like, I feel like I'm feel like i more performing than playing.
0: Well, I would love to talk to you about performance because I think it's an aspect of video games in particular that yeah. doesn't get brought up in at least the books I've been reading so far. There's a guy, there's an author named Graham Kirkpatrick who wrote a book called Aesthetic Theory in the Video Game. And I recommend it to anybody. It's, it's literally the book that sent me on this path that I am now over two years ago. And he compares video games to dance. Very uh, convincingly and his whole thing with dance is it's a physical It's a physical um, activity and when you're learning a video game if there's a tutorial what they're doing his whole analogy is They're teaching you the basic step, right? So when you first learn to dance you learn the basic step you know if you learn to swing you, you know You go back and forth to this to the counts and once you've got the basic step down Then you add a couple moves right and once you know a few moves Then you can string those moves together in a more complex String of moves until you're doing like all of these big flourishes and you're and you're really kind of going out there and dancing and That's how um, he uses the game mirror's edge as an example. I don't know if you've played mirror's edge Love it. Love it. Yeah, mirror's edge is a is a parkour game where it's first person and all of your buttons are basically allowing your character to like duck under things wall run grab ledges when you first learn that game You just learn jump Slide under, grab a ledge, and next thing you know, you're having to string all of these moves together, much like you would in like a, a, a high-level dancing uh, like competition or something. Yeah. And I always found that super compelling. And he even talks about um, how dance wasn't accepted in academia as an art form. It took them a long time to sort of gain that status, I guess, if you will. And I think video games also kind of share that toil right now, um, and then he, go, he moves into games like Street Fighter and Fighting Games where when, when an audience is watching Street Fighter, they're not cheering because they see Hadoukens flying and pretty colors and you know all of the effects of the game that they would normally see every day. They're cheering because they understand the physical tension. In each of the players hands that is required to do what is on the screen so when you see someone like Daigo in moment 37 um, parry every single one of Chun Lee's attacks it's not that like if you were to just play that animation and it was like on a debug kit from a developer you'd be like oh cool that's what that looks like but when right. you know someone's doing it then it becomes infinitely more impressive because it's being performed
1: yeah so I I would hear that and I would say dance is clearly art and I
0: can I ask you why like why, it, how is and especially with our definitions from yeah. the last episode, how is art designed?
1: Well, there's a designer and then they would design whatever medium they choose. So painters would design a painting and then execute. Sculptors would have a, a design in their head, create it and say, yeah, this is art and I have designed it. Mm-hmm. Right. So my definition is art is anything that is uh, designed and considered art by the designer. Therefore, yeah, any performance would be art that definition because
0: someone's just mapping out the choreography even if it was in real time
1: so my issue then with dance being play it seems more like a better analogy would be like maybe sports basketball that kind of stuff because dance uh there's no unpredictability right this is sort of an issue that i raised earlier and that if you understand the dance entirely and you've been to practice session after practice session it's still clearly art and maybe The most beautiful art ever. You know, Mm -hmm. you you could put that in the same category as other forms of art. But is it play if there isn't uncertainty?
0: What if someone's shoe comes off in the middle of the dance? So the the performance,
1: the idea of like live performance could be play, but the dance itself doesn't seem like play to me. In the same way, like a painting, if I look at a painting, it's not that that painting isn't play. How I interface with it could be with the uncertainty of how I'm going to feel. If I look at it, there's uncertainty in, in that aspect. But I I would still um, put a dividing line between art and play. And really, my dividing line would anchor on the idea of uncertainty. And I'm curious how you'd feel about that. With art and play, it's different in that art can have no uncertainty and still be art, but play necessitates uncertainty i'm not playing if i'm just going through moves over and over again like a chessboard right if i if we're replaying a game that's already been played mm-hmm. and we already know the moves all the way we already understand that white checkmate's black and we're just going through the moves over and over again yeah i could pick up the queen and, f- and fumble it right and the queen falls right but that's not like interest that's not playful that's just a mistake that was done that's not like an interesting uncertainty so in my mind that's just a performance of a game that's already been done that might be art it might not be but it's definitely not play without the uncertainty.
0: So, I mean, we talked about composer play quite a bit in the last episode. Do you kind of recall?
1: So the choreographer, I think, would play yeah. in the idea of the free space of the uncertainty. What am I going to do? Uh, I could yeah. do all these different moves. And That'd that's, be awesome.
0: And that's the creation of the
1: dance. But performing the dance, to me, seems different. If let's, you already know what's going to happen.
0: Well, let's talk about actors, okay? Yeah. Like actors on a stage. There's like quite a bit of unpredictability because quite like you... Your uh, stage mate could forget a line, and you in that moment have to internalize the fact that maybe they got the, lo- the line wrong, and that line that they just said might actually invalidate the next few lines down the row that you needed to say, and so you have to immediately like, course correct and change what your performance would have been To make sure that that internal constraint, which was that misspoken line, is entered into the fold and upholds whatever the performance was for the audience.
1: Yeah, so I would just point to the idea that that is interesting because it shouldn't have happened. Like, it's interesting that they script a line because they shouldn't have scripted a line. But, there should not have been uncertainty. But, and but that's all of a sudden the whole thing with is.
0: performance. Like, if performance is an action, then how is it not constantly bound by uncertainty? There's like, there's got to be a total tension there that what if my fucking leg breaks and next thing you know, I can't dance at all. The play space is absolutely collapsed because play has ceased.
1: But you, when you're performing, you don't want the uncertainty, right? As a performance poet in college, I went up on the stage hoping for no uncertainty, hoping to just do my poem. Uh-huh. When I opened up a video game, I, I, If there's no uncertainty, I don't open up the video game. The purpose of going online and playing whatever video game online is the uncertainty. I want the uncertainty. That's what makes it playful to me. If I'm hoping for no uncertainty, then I'm performing, and it seems less playful just intrinsically. That's kind of how I feel about
0: it. But I also think you're approaching it from, like, there's two schools of acting, right? There's, like, the method actor who wants to be the character right. and let the performance happen organically. And then there's, like, the very studied and measured actor who says, I want to map out every move in advance and i'm going to execute it right and that's sort of what you're i think where you're coming at but at the end of the day i think still in that actor's mind there's a tension in the back of their head that knows what they are doing isn't real life and what they're doing is a performance and there's that constant tension of like i need to pretend to be this thing and what johan um talks about Way like you know, tribal days of of, of civilization is uh, tribes who would have these ritual ceremonies, and they the the elders would put on these masks. And when they'd put these masks on, they were supposed to be coming like their dead ancestors, essentially. And they would come out to the circle where the fire was, and they'd have to pretend to be the dead ancestors. And his whole thing is like, there's a huge amount of tension in the mind of that person. They know in the back of their mind they're not their dead ancestor. But they have to, in that moment, totally be and adopt all of the constraints necessary to become yeah. that dead a- ancestor. And that like and and for me that that translates to like all sorts of types of religious ceremonies, you know, like when people are holding up the body of Christ and saying that this is this is the flesh of this person. like in my mind, I think you're absolutely playing because you at least for me, I mean, I know some people say that they believe it, but there's no way you could possibly believe that, you know. <laughs> yeah, we got, whoops.
1: <laughs> well, maybe we can go after it. But, but my, my, and maybe I can, I can put it this way. I clearly and totally agree that there's a difference between a stand-up comedian and an improv comedian. That the improv comedian to me seems inherently playful. I think if you are hoping for no uncertainty in the way that 95% of performers do, you are hoping to not be playful. Yeah. So I think there's a difference between understanding what play is and the necessity of uncertainty and hoping for it and wanting it and that being play versus the raw performance side of it and hoping for no uncertainty. I'm hoping that there isn't play between me and my art. I'm hoping for play maybe between the audience and their uncertainty of what I'm going to do next. Mm -hmm. So they're constantly interpreting what it is that I'm doing as I'm performing. Right. But I think the performer of the art, uh, hoping for not play, if not, Making it not play at least puts a different category between there being play and performance. To me, there's a a non-negligible difference between performance and play, and that is the hope of uncertainty. To me, that feels different.
0: Yeah, and I I mean at this point, I wouldn't want to try to continue to um like negate anything you're saying because. You're right. Like, I don't think performance has to be play. Like, I don't that's nothing I've like written down and said is full stop. Right. Performance is play and play is performance and vice versa. But I just think that play seeps into performance very, in very small ways, especially with that tension like we're talking about or I was talking about earlier. Um, but no, you're right. I mean, and that kind of brings us the idea of something that we wanted to talk about this episode and that we we're kind of getting at in the last one that kind of feels unsatisfying to me, which is why I want to bring it up again. Yeah. And that was the whole statement of that. If play is as simple as move a free movement through a system of constraints, then anything is play. And if play is anything, it's then what, nothing. Are, what are we talking about? Yeah. And one, I want to tackle that head on. But two, I also just want to hear from you because this is something I say all the time. Like I tell people, well, if art is everything, then art doesn't exist. Right. Right. Um, that's sort of like a That's a fallacy, you know. Yeah. Uh, But do you kind of ascribe to the idea that, like, if we're going to say that one particular thing can be anything, then it's also nothing? Do you kind of, is that something that you're, you're, how you can understand that sort of relationship?
1: Yeah, I think without omniscience, you have to understand everything by its opposite. So if everything is art, then what? There's, it's not meaningful to say that something is art Mm -hmm. because anything could be. So what are we talking about? Right. So I, I would say, yeah, if you can. If you have a definition and there's not a clear understanding of something that could be its opposite in a way that you can frame what it is you're talking about, right. then yeah. If if anything is X, then why ever talk about X? There's yeah. no point in talking about it if, you, if it's not a meaningful definition.
0: Yeah. So that's actually kind of convenient because it rolls right into how I was going to bring up uh, the idea that anything can be play. It's trying to think about the opposite of play. Yeah. And this is something that housinger does in his book at the outset. He, he attaches... He at, uh, attacks play uh from the onset from like a language standpoint and he takes he looks at the word and how um how cultures describe play in their languages and it's super interesting um, but he eventually tries to say that we don't really have like a cut and dry opposite for the word play and what he gets at the closest is work
1: i was about to say that kind of that's what come to mind to me at least is right let play and work and he
0: also says or like doing things in earnest and he kind of like really disc- he, he takes a little bit of time to talk about what he means in earnest. But for for how I understand it is like a pointed, like genuineness, like I'm not doing this one thing because the act of doing it is why I, I want it to be done. It's like it's something that it's a means to an end. Right. Yeah. Um, so those are the, his sort of opposites. And so when we think when you were saying if anything can be play, I really wanted to start taking maybe some of the examples that you would have to go that that would um, exemplify things that would maybe be really hard to describe as play and see if we can just separate a full on feeling of play of play, like a play space, you know, like hopscotch or something like that. And then take an adjective like playful and just playfulness. Like maybe there's just something about this particular action that has um has a bit of like some of its root is in play. And then also talk about how when things become work or they become necessary, like that's when play starts to erode and it goes away. Yeah. And I want to know where you, where you sit with sort of that foundation right there. Um, and how, and how you can, I don't know. And, and, and I also want to work in ordinary life as well. Cause I know that's also been something that you've been hung up on a little bit.
1: Yeah. And so I think anything can be play but it stems from the person who is playing. So you have to create a game. So I think the the easy one is like the DMV, right? Mm -hmm. So you go to the DMV, you sit in a chair, and you hate it, and you wait, and you wait, and people are not lazy, but just they don't care. Yep. So you get that feeling, but you could could make it in a playful way where how many times is that guy in the white shirt gonna rub his nose? Mm -hmm. Every time he does it, that's gonna be 10 points for me, And there's a guy next to me and hey, if he catches him doing it and I don't catch it, that's like minus five points for me, right? You can make a game out of different things, right? But there are other areas and other arenas where you would put a game in an Xbox and you can't interface with it without it to being play I as a human. I
0: don't think that's true. Because like, okay. we talked about in the very first episode, we were like, well, would you say that you play video games for a living? And I, and my response was like, actually, no, because we have to remember that free will part. Like the fact that I am compulsed, it's compulsory for me to go through my game and like, quote unquote, play it in certain ways. That's not that's not an experience of play for me. That's an experience of work. Okay. You know what I mean?
1: So yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about the heuristics, right? So you're saying... As far as the player, we go back to the sort of satisfaction heuristic, where if there isn't an end state of the game that you would ever find satisfactory, Mm -hmm. then it can't be play. Yeah. So you would say maybe in that state, if I put a game in an Xbox and I'm just forced to play it, quote unquote play it, um, if there's no way that I would be satisfied with the end state of the actions that I am taking then it isn't play. If I can't be satisfied, is that where you would draw that line? You no. can have choice, variety, consequence, predictability, uncertainty. You can have all of these things, but I can't be satisfied because I'm being forced to do x,
0: y, or z. I think it would still be a play space. It would just wouldn't be a good one. But you'd be playing. You would be playing.
1: So then it is play.
0: Yes. Like if, if, you, if a game is just not a satisfying game to play, we play those all the time. We play shitty games that aren't satisfying. It just means the play space was non-interesting.
1: That's sort of my point, then. If I, if I put a, if a game into an Xbox and start it up, and I interface with it, can that not be play? And it seemed like you were saying, yeah, it can be work, but then you just said, well, of course it's play.
0: No, no, no. Oh, I'm trying to like, differentiate what we're talking about. there. Mm. If I have to put the game in the Xbox, and it's my job to do so... It's not play. I'm not playing. It. And I do, I am adopting the player first attitude that you're kind of putting forth here, because we already said like in the very first episode, you can have a spoil sport. A single person yeah. can destroy a play space.
1: Sure, absolutely. And that is
0: like absolutely hundred percent individual driven. Right. Yeah. Um, so if, if someone is compulsed to put the, the game in, and interface with it, I don't think it's play. But if someone wants to play the game and they just can't find a satisfying conclusion or they can't find any satisfaction into it, I would just say it's not an interesting play space or it's a frustrating play space.
1: So then how is it not play? Like what would be your defining Here's the line between I am compulsed to put a game in an Xbox and I really would rather not, but I do it and I interface with the game in the way that it's intended. Mm -hmm. How is it not play? What would be your line that we could then say anything on the left side of the line is play, anything on the right side of the line is not play? And here's the line.
0: Let's talk about ordinary life. Let's make ordinary life the line. Okay. Because I I have to go to work every day and play the game that I work on, right? Quote unquote play, for lack of a better word. Right. I have to interface with the game. That I work on. And that has just become the fabric of my routine. And there's nothing new there or engaging about doing it. There might be moments where it becomes so where it's like, oh, I have 10 minutes to kill. And I actually think I just realized a new strategy in here. And I want to try it out for a little while. Now I'm playing the game. But from that point, uh, and before I wasn't, because it's just a part of the everyday fabric of my life. And there was we never entered the magic circle. There was never a tension that at any point in time this play could stop because it never started.
1: Yeah. So you say ordinary life. If it becomes different from ordinary life, that is a dividing line between play and not play. Yes. So what about people who play more than they don't? Very playful people. Mm-hmm. And the ordinary life is often a game. Maybe they play you know, professionally and then it becomes... The opposite of ordinary life is, you know, having nothing to interface with in a way that there is some sort of goal oriented interface with a game. If ordinary life is play, then it becomes playful to not play. It seems contradictory. It seems odd.
0: Yeah. I mean, that kind of makes sense to me. Like if if you're a football player and what if there's a whole six months out of the year where you're like, I don't even, this is my job. I have to go work out, then I have to practice the plays, I go on the field, I execute the plays, I come off the field. I'm not playing the game, I'm doing my job. But maybe there's one particular game in the playoffs where you are just feeling it, yeah. and you want to be there, and the uncertainty of the game, and the tension of like the, the play space created by the field, you feel it, and suddenly you're not at work, you're playing football.
1: Well, we have to make a dividing line then. So they're still playing, they're just not enjoying it. right? There's still... A play space defined by the heuristics we've talked about earlier. There's a play space and I'm interfacing with a game in a way that is a play space as defined by the rules of the game we've all agreed upon, all the players have agreed upon these rules. You're still playing. So you would say, if I'm not enjoying myself, I'm not playing? Because it seems like you're playing a video game and you can come in and out of play. All of a sudden, there's 10 minutes to kill and there's a new strategy. All of a sudden, it becomes play. And then I'm back to, no, now I'm working again. Now it's not play. So to me, it seems like you're doing the exact same action, but it's play not play based on your enjoyment of it. I well, mean, that
0: seems wrong. I don't want to equate play with something like flow, for instance. Yeah, You know, like operating sure. within the flow channel where you're being fed a perfect gradual incline of challenges that you can meet with the incline of your own skills yeah. and like you just get in this zone. Because you can play, that's, that's what happens when you play like a classic game, right? Like when I play Zelda Ocarina of Time, I'm not experiencing it for the first time where I'm uncertain of everything. I'm just sort of going through it and I'm still enjoying it mildly. I'm still playing the game because I want to be there. And then there's other games like Dark Souls where it's like it demands so much of my attention and I can't meet those challenges. But I would still say I'm playing it because I'm like not compulsed to do it. And I'm still I've still separated myself from the world around me, you know And that was like sort of the, the very first way I got into the idea of aesthetic experience was through Graham Kirkpatrick who said, you know when when uh, art theorists for like Kant for instance would talk about aesthetic experience He would talk about being inside of an appropriated time where you lose You lose all feeling of time at all and you are just in that moment and to me like that hyper characterizes play is when you've just lost yourself to the outside world
1: so we need to be careful i think with the definition so there's there's what is play and there's what is like good play like what is fun play those are different so i, I think we need to define again play because it seems like the idea of it is play or not play based on if i feel that i'm working or not working seems to be fleshed out so maybe it's that simple
0: i mean maybe I think it's like it if, if,
1: if it's play if i feel like i am playing right if you want to put it to where it's like where it is with art right? It's art. If it's designed and the person who designed it says, yeah, it's art, then it becomes art. If I'm you. playing and I say, yep, I feel like I'm playing. That's when it becomes play. If we want to make it that broad, yeah, I dude. think that that fits. Like, I don't think that's unfair.
0: I mean, and that's the thing is like housing, it talks about some of the most basic concepts of play. And he talk he goes back to the tribal examples and he talks about this uh, tradition that he calls the potlatch. It's spelled P-O-T. L A C H. Okay. And what this is, is essentially like you'd have these two chiefs from two different tribes who would come together and to prove their like dominance over the other, they would slaughter all their sheep and like burn their uh, crops. And it was basically like, how much are you willing? How, like, how much do you have that you're willing to continue to go until one of you, one of you just cries uncle. Right. And and housing has said like, this is play. It may be incredibly serious and they may not even think of it as play, but it's a, and this is why I want to try to draw lines between like being holistically enveloped in the word play and then having something be playful. He said like, this is a playful aspect of culture because it's a set of rules that is being set up and they're totally arbitrary, but they're agreed upon and they have meaning to these two groups of people and they're just, then they're just running through them.
1: What if the two chiefs say, no, it's not play? Like, this is, who, this is how we decide who the chief is. We're not playing.
0: I mean, I, I still think, like, us from our ivory tower could say, no, it's still a playful thing you're doing, granted, with, with our definitions.
1: But then the definition is the person who is engaging with the game thinks of it as play. So the two chiefs are saying, no, we're not playing. This is an election. Then who are we? So you could say we could override it and say no, you are playing.
0: I think the act of what they're doing is playful. They may not feel like they're playing, but I think that we could call it like a playful, like experience or a playful. Tradition. So maybe, maybe,
1: maybe we're beating on the bush. Can you define play? Can we, hit, can we just hit it right on the head?
0: I mean, I still I think that free movement through a system of constraints is very useful. I do think it's a little bit broad after talking to you throughout the course of these episodes. Yeah. And I really like adding that there needs to be some sort of tension uh, with everyday life. There needs to be a tension that you know at any point in time this whole entire thing can come crumbling down.
1: It has to be like an illusion.
0: Yes, like Exactly. Hmm. And it and it needs to be, and it's something that's done. I don't want to say as a like in an end in and of itself because I don't want to like kind of open up that can of worms before we, without closing the one we're on now. Yeah. But I I there's also that aspect too that like it's something worth doing because you want to do it.
1: I like that. I actually I think as far as opening the can of worms to me, that's one of the better definitions I've heard. It's an end in itself. Yes. You are doing X because you want to do X. Right. So. Uh, it's easy to then point out you know, with our contradictions of work and play like that professional gamer, right? It screams the question, the professional, yeah, gamer, what are they playing. doing? Are they playing? Or are they not playing? And I think it's kind of cool. You could say, well, it's up to the person behind the console. It's up to mm-hmm. the person behind the monitor. Are, it, some of them are probably playing. Some of them probably aren't playing. Right. You know, and it's up to that person to say, I am or am not playing. Like it's up to the listener. Are you playing? Are you not playing? And hopefully with these, these, these vocabulary words and these ideas of, Uh, engaging in different play spaces, you can now um, open up certain games and different experiences in everyday life and decide, yes, I am or am not playing. We've maybe elevated that conversation a bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it feels that
0: way. I mean, and there's other things. I mean, housing's entire book goes through um, different elements of, like, essentially how cultures and society runs, and he points out the playfulness in them, and he talks about um, law, like courts, and the idea of a court being a magic circle that you walk into and immediately you adopt all these new traditions of behavior. People have to speak in different terms. There has to be different words and rules. Like when the gavel comes down, you got to be quiet. That's a, it's for him. It's a very playful Act and it's not playful as in like oh, we're all having so much fun. It's right. incredibly serious But he's saying that this element of culture is extremely playful and he even talks about like the garb that people put on yeah. You talk about the judge's wig and his robes so t- entirely Unnecessary, but it's a part of the costume of that play space. See
1: uh, <laughs> We just
0: <laughs>
1: Just destroy the definition we just made But it's, a- it's an end in itself Court is not an end in itself. And it's Pretty much a separate and, end. And
0: he says that it is no longer play now. But he just... All he's trying to point out is that it's kind of playful in nature. Like, it's... There's some... There's aspects of it that are pretty much arbitrary. And that it once was, like, way more playful. Like, some of the first courts ever were always left up to the gods, either by, like, dice rolls or, like, <laughs> combat and things like that. Yeah. And that was absolutely, like... Jesus. You know what I mean? So... So
1: then it seems like... We need to now define like playful. So we, sure. I think I think we have play nailed down, but now you're saying that that work can be playful, and that play can be not playful, right? So those are different. Being engaging in play and being playful are different. Like courts can be playful, but you're, it's not
0: play. I, I think what I really want to do is just have people take a step back to look at some of the more ensconced traditions we have in society and try to maybe look at where they might have elements of play because that's where they may probably came from a playful spot. Yeah. You know, and he even talks about um, like the law of nations and war towards the very end, which anytime I can find a philosophy that scales to the individual all the way up to the state, yeah. I always love it. And he talks about some of these Chinese generals who like very purposely would not make strategic decisions because they wanted to uphold some sort of code of honor or, or have they wanted to be considered like more polite than the other person? And in the sense that the potlatch was based on like pure competition, the the actions sort of governing or the rules sort of governing some of these generals' actions that were like not good for war and statecraft, but were just playful like constraints on their behavior. Yeah, you know?
1: it just seems problematic to me to say that like soldiers are playing.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. You know like, what I mean? Yeah, like to degrade. I mean, it. gladiators aren't playing. They're right. about to. They're about to die. They weren't. They're not freely like.
1: But then, by that definition, like, are they? Right? Is there choice? Is there variety? I mean, if is a gladiator wanted
0: to be there and he finds the tension between his life and death to be so intensely satisfying that he enters this state of experience that he considers play, then so, that,
1: so that's what I like. I like the idea of the individual being able to say like, "This is play or is not play for me." But I know you're not a fan of relativism.
0: Well, but we have heuristics to to guide us. I mean, the same way that we said there are um, certain interpretive moves that just quite simply aren't allowed within a given like text or a given painting. Yeah. We can still say that. Yeah, just because you tell me you're playing, you know, if we have our toolkit now to to sort of hold your feet to the fire. Yeah. And figure it out for ourselves.
1: But if if we end it with the person understands it as play that's pretty relativist. Sure, so we have these ideas to where we can now say uh, a play space is almost objectively more or less interesting. There's more choice, there's yeah. more variety, uncertainty, all these kind of things. Um, if you're willing to end it with but the person engaging with the play space ultimately can decide whether or not it's play, it seems pretty relativist, but I'm willing to end it there.
0: But I do think play is sort of this state of mind, you know. Yeah. And I I do yeah. want to reiterate yep. the, the tension with uh, uh with ordinary life that we've kind of put out at the beginning of this. I want to continue to highlight that that I think needs to be there. And I do think this is the kind of forum for a very uh, for relativism to come in. Like that for me is where like why art is so compelling because it is an, it's an area for us to be as almost subjective as possible. It's like an area for us to explore our own subjective sides, yeah. you know? So with
1: that with that idea, can you defend play as a worthwhile use of our time? So when I think of ordinary life, I think of people benefiting themselves. Mm-hmm. I think of them going to work to establish different um, aspects of society that are worth, um, at you know, at the, the, the lower end, money, at the higher end, Saving lives and that kind of stuff. So when you think of ordinary life, that's when I think of developing skills. Uh, I think of benefiting society, species, that kind of stuff. So when you think of being at tension or at odds with benefiting ourselves, can we then defend the use of our time regularly as as play or engaging in ways that are not benefiting ourselves? So you walk in, yeah, you press A to jump. Cool, right trigger shoots, awesome. You're shooting a virtual person on a screen. Cool, this is a good use of your time. This is how we should be using our time, not learning, studying, becoming better versions of ourselves. Like I've dedicated the last two and a half years of my life to manned spaceflight, And there's maybe aspects of play in simulations, but it doesn't really feel like play because there's a $150 billion vehicle and six lives at stake regularly. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't feel that playful to me. Right. So I'm curious if, and I'm not saying that I don't think it's defendable, but I'm curious if you want to say that like utilizing a majority of your time in play and in um, maybe selfish is a wrong word, but in a self-centered way of I just want to be escapist. I want to escape the, the, our, my ordinary life. Is that defendable? And what, what do you owe society? We talked about this a bit yesterday. Maybe it's ultimately defendable.
0: There's no way we have time to get it to rehash you know, the two hours we went down at <laughs> uh, that rabbit hole again. But, the, but the, I, I see where you're going. If
1: you don't owe society anything, then it's, ob- it's what I want to do. It's easily defendable. Well, I don't owe anyone anything.
0: Well, one, you said ordinary life. You have to be like bettering yourself or society.
1: You tend to be, I think.
0: But what about the person whose ordinary life is sitting on the couch and taking bong rips? That's his ordinary life. That's his routine. I think. What so- about the surfer who every day just wakes up and hits the waves? So That's a society ordinary life.
1: crumbles if that is a majority of the population. I agree, but
0: I'm just saying that ordinary life for some people might be incredibly simple and lazy. You know, it doesn't ha- like. I'm just trying to yeah. debunk your original uh, definition. So
1: I agree here. that 100 percent of people are not. 100% of the time bettering themselves in ordinary life. Right. I'd say a majority of the society is doing that because we have a society, right? right? I think if 80% of the people just did bong rips and hit surfer waves, right, we would collapse as well, a people.
0: Okay, well, then listen to this, all right? I, I, I see where you're going. Um, you're talking about learning, and one, I think we have to talk about just the concept of leisure and leisure time and relaxing as being supplemental to to having a good life and leading a good life. And you're uh, you're also talking about the 80% of people who don't just sit on the on the couch and they they have a compulsion to learn. They learn because they can learn. Like the fact that our brains are equipped with mechanics to create knowledge is a lot of the reason why people are constantly driven to just use those mechanics. And in play, that is all you're doing. You are not you are not playing to learn things. And this was a, a quote from Upton and I loved it. You are playing because you can learn and his whole, all in what he talked about there was the epistemological cycle of um, a constant loop between anticipating the future. Anytime a crux in our understanding um, shows itself, we immediately have to create a new piece of knowledge to explain that. And then that gets worked into our now whole understanding of, the world and yeah. then we continue that cycle again, and that's exactly what play is It's a poking at the boundaries of what you can do. It's internalizing rules and it's literally It's the mechanics of the mind to learn and all and what play is is a safe comfortable Spot for you to exercise your brain You may not be thinking of it of bit of exercise and I would want and I wouldn't even want to say that like oh No, it's good because you're exercising. I would just say that In the same way that uh, people talk about heavy metal music as being, as giving people a sense of like control and power because they can envelop themselves in a chaos, but still be safe. To me, it's almost like you get to section yourself off from the trials and the toils of everyday life, but you still get to learn and internalize and work your brain. Your brain wants to learn. That's how it, that is how it works, It's how it functions, and you're just giving an opportunity to do so in a very low stakes environment, you know?
1: But reading like the classics, learning a language, creating art that you can emotionally connect with an audience, and beating XCOM on the hardest difficulty. I think one of these things doesn't belong with the others
0: why does everybody have to create something to be like bettering themselves? What about the people who like aren't creative? Like, and that's the other thing housing talks about. He talks about, uh, he says there's two types of people in the world. He said there's players and there's workers. And the players are the ones who have that competitive edge. They want to show that they Are valuable in the areas that they value, and they're gonna drive for that. And then the worker is someone who is perfectly content going out into the field, picking his vegetables, coming home, sitting in a chair, relaxing, and going about it the next day. And I honestly found that I almost found myself wanting, wishing that I had could adopt that mindset because (laughs) I, yeah, because I feel like I'm an incredible, like I'm incredibly player driven. Where like I feel a constant need to be recognized and to toil and to better and i don't think that you have to be reading the classics and that's the other thing is like why why are we going to draw a line between reading the classics and playing xcom what if xcom taught your brain how to problem solve in a portable way that can then be applied to outside life
1: that's what i would be that's what i would point at right. is the ability of video games to allow you to do risk management to critically think about things and spatial awareness skills the ability to look through different strategies and to evaluate different strategies based on constraints of money, of time, of maybe not human life, but of like virtual human life. Like I was playing XCOM, getting my ass kicked on normal difficulty, mm-hmm. and having to come up with different strategies all the time. Yeah, it wasn't just like turning my brain off and like just pressing mashing the A button over and over again. It was hiring new people, aesthetic engagement, using different different countries give you different resources. So who do you uh? put on the top of your list of what countries you help because different countries give you different resources. So you hire a bunch of Chinese soldiers because you get more science. But if, by doing that, you don't hire American scientists who give you uh, better engineering with aircraft and spacecraft, right? You're, you're constantly managing different things. Yep. So I think in the same route that we can say different philosophers are better to, uh, to study than other philosophers, I think different games uh, give you advantages in these critical thinking, risk management kind of skills that you don't get in other places. I think games do give you that. Right. So bettering yourself by playing games, I think, is easy to defend.
0: Right. And, you know, ultimately, you know, we're kind of talking about meaning again here and how Upton kind of talked. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. Right. And how he describes <laughs> meaning is, especially meaning that we find valuable is when it's very portable. And which means we can apply it to other things in our lives and, it be, and the more portable it is essentially the more meaningful it becomes because it can Straight up like be perspective changing Whereas if you are playing God of War you and this is the example he uses you might learn Really well how to kill skeletons, but killing skeletons doesn't apply anywhere else outside Maybe that game and a couple others. So it's not very portable, but In a game like maybe Papers, Please, which I know you like, you might learn a new way of viewing nationalities and people, and that's incredibly portable uh, and and therefore extremely meaningful. And I think maybe to sort of wrap up the discussion um, is at the end of the day, I still, though we can get meaning from games, and again, to reiterate what we said in the second episode, I think meaning is a residue of experience. It's the final area in the phase space where we've landed after we've stopped playing, whether we've stopped playing due to exhaustion, we've stopped playing because there's no no more meaningful moves to make and playing further would not, would just be pointless. That That's how meaning is created, but We Started, you know, this is a podcast about aesthetics and aesthetic experience I still want to reiterate that the process of moving through the play space can be the end Into itself and that's and it's another reason why I love the example of papers, please because I do think it teaches It can teach you how to fundamentally view like humanity differently But there is something addicting about just pulling open the shutter clicking for the next person opening the book bringing out the stamp hitting the stamp next person there's something about the process there that is just simply engaging to move through and i still think that even if that game gave us no meaning outside of the game itself if we could look at that engaging loop of just process as as like one of the more engaging ones we've ever seen i think we should be able to call it art
1: yeah so that's maybe something i can maybe you backtrack, maybe I'm not backtracking. The idea of art and play being unto itself, to me, the meaning, like Guernica to me is a more meaningful and better piece of art than a landscape painting. Mm -hmm. Like the meaning as a art and play as a conduit through which you can teach or explore philosophical ideas and emotional connections with an audience seems like a more um, useful use of our time. And I'm curious if you would agree with that or if you should say play can and maybe should be an end in itself. And it's up to the player to say whether or not their time is being utilized in a way that is uh, the best use of their time. That I'm more relaxed playing God of War, playing Guitar Hero. I enjoy that game more, that's a better use of my time versus me saying, no, there's no philosophical concept, there's no emotional attachment that you're getting through Guitar Hero, that's a waste of your time, that's a bad game, that's a poor play space. Can we objectively and philosophically explore different play spaces as conduits for philosophical ideas, emotional connections? Can we objectively say that meaningful games are better a better use of the player's time or is that completely subjective to the person and what they're trying to get out of the game
0: well we're talking about good and better versus probably bad and worse and yeah. i think that is then that is the pivot to philosophy and morality and
1: like what is the good kind of thing exactly yeah. and
0: you know if we we can i think explore those concepts maybe through video games but i do think that is the beginning of a conversation that is just too big for the remainder of the time that we have for yeah. this episode and i think it's a good place to go and i think to sort of uh, to cut off the conversation from going in that direction and still engage with your question about Guernica and a landscape painting. All I would ask you is that if someone had no concept of who Picasso was, he had no idea what the subject matter of the painting was, or even he had never read a history book, he or she had never read a history book in their life. If they looked at the painting and were just bored by it, I would say that it was a poor aesthetic experience. Like if they had no chance of getting anything meaningful from
1: Spanish Civil War, that kind of thing, they just didn't pick up on it.
0: Nothing, but the uh, the act of looking in their eye, moving through the painting, if that was still something that was engaging, and the engagement lasted a long time, I would say it was a good painting. If it wasn't, I would say it wasn't. And the thing is, is there's landscape paintings where you may look at it for a moment, and be like oh, it's a hill, but if you would just stand there and look for 20 minutes, even you might find that one of those mountains is actually like a lamb and you just didn't notice it. It's like the magic eye where like it snaps into view really quick. And when that happens, you're like, Oh shit, that's really cool. Right. And ultimately, you know, I think you've been very where you've stuck to your guns is this delivery of meaning. And it's like, if that's all we're about, then like why paint, why not just put, why didn't Picasso just write words on a wall And Deliver them to you that way and if you're and then if the answer is because this was meaning that could only be delivered Through the painting then then we have to recognize that there were mechanics inside the painting itself that only the painting could achieve And we have to recognize that those mechanics are the boundaries of the aesthetic experience
1: Yeah, I think absolutely I think if you read words and someone tells you X versus you Getting as close to possible as you having a first-person experience with X. Exactly. is it's just different,
0: right? And that was part of the definition of yeah. of that experience at the end, where he said Brian, Brian Upton said like, if you're going to create aesthetic experience, you can make sure the meaning is hard to get to. It needs to be convoluted. The player or the person needs to be able to like be confused Come and to figure it, it out. Yeah, you know, absolutely. so Max. That's kind of the end of where I was wanting to go as we wrap up the final episode of the series. I think before we get out of here, I just want to ask you, is there anything else you want to touch up on or any final doors we need to close, knots to tie?
1: Looking down the hallway, man, I think there's only one door that's slightly ajar that I wanted to, to jump into with you. And that was the technique. Sure. If it is more difficult to do, is it better art? I don't know. A picture versus like a hyper-realist painting. Is it better art that it is a painting, or is the hyper-realist painting of a wine glass the same as the picture of the wine
0: glass? Right. Where, I, where
1: do you land? I'm just kidding. We, we don't we need to jump into sure. it. I'm just high level. I I I lean towards no, because I'm a big fan of the meaning of the of the mm. art. What do you think?
0: I mean, I think things like technique, even things like beauty or emotion are yeah. a lot of things that get attached and and come up in the conversation of art discovery, discovering something for the first time versus interacting with it again. And I think there are interesting um, aspects of the conversation that can be brought into the fold. I don't know how they affect, affect it so uh, yet. Uh, as of this, at the time of this recording, I would say, no, I don't think technique makes something more artistic or not. Um, I think about someone like a drummer like Neil Peart, who is incredibly technical, but I don't think it's his technique alone that makes the music good. It's everything else about the music. Whereas you have some like guitarists who are maybe the fastest in the world and their music sucks, you know? So I don't know. I, I old, I would shy away from no technique does not equal good art, but I just wanted to, when it comes to technique, discovery, beauty, sublimity and things like that. I think those are, those are aspects where a lot of philosophers those are like the extreme details yeah. of the art conversation that we didn't even get into, but yeah. they're there, you know? So that's, I think that's it. Hopefully Mas, that's satisfying. That's all I had. But yeah. Yeah.
1: I, yeah. It's an interesting idea. Right.
0: Absolutely. Well, Max, thank you so much for joining me on this journey.
1: Put a bow on it, man. Yeah.
0: That's three episodes of the greatest game. I hope, um, the audience listening, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was something that was somewhat approachable, uh, and that you could come along the conversation with us and there's so much more I think that you and I want to talk about both in this yeah. subject in particular and in other ones. And so who knows, maybe there'll be opportunity to do that furthermore down the line. If you liked it, let the people know um, who run OKBeast okay that you did. and maybe if,
1: best it, w- say, it feels good being on OKBeast, okay man. Yeah. Looking through some of their stuff, man, it feels good. It feels right. So they, I'm excited to engage with the audience of OKBeast okay and see what they think about it for sure.
0: Absolutely. And uh, I know that you're not really one for social media and following and kind of stuff. So unless there's anything you want to plug...
1: Plugging the show, man. I'm again, like my, the whole point of the show was if 30 people listen to this and all 30 say, your ideas are moronic, uh-huh. and they start a conversation about how I, our ideas are super moronic. That's great. That's, That's the point of the show is to start the the conversation. So my engagement and my plug is just this show, and I'm hoping to engage with the audience of OK Beast. Man, I'm excited for it. Okay,
0: absolutely. Well, uh, my name again is Chase Williams, and you have been Max Kelleher. If you want to follow me, I'm at Bodacious chase on Twitter. Um, obviously, I like to talk about these kinds of subjects. Yeah. So if you're interested in video games and you want to reach out to me after listening to this episode, I promise you, I'm addicted to talking people. <laughs> I will speak with you right back. Oh yeah. Um, and then also, of course, you can follow OK Beast on Twitter. They they're at OK now. And you can go to their website, uh, which they put great content out. Very, very highly polished. Oh, work. Yeah. So that's been the greatest game. And for Max and for Chase, see you later. It's a
1: pleasure. Have a good one.